This is Bold Dominion, an explainer for state politics in a changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. Teachers across America are brainwashing our youth with critical race theory so they all become woke gay communists. Or so it would seem if you consume right-wing media lately. Critical race theory has become a notorious buzzword for today's American conservative movement. And that's especially true here in Virginia. In several counties, school systems around the state have been trying to educate children about the history of racism and systemic racism in the United States. The term critical race theory has been leveled as an accusation and bludgeon against these efforts. That tension turned to chaos at a recent school board meeting up in Loudoun, which was halted due to protests that resulted in one arrest. So what is critical race theory, and how has it come to be the newest right-wing boogeyman? It is a type of issue that people can engage in that gets a lot of people out there in society really worked up. That's UVA sociology professor Ian Mullins. His research specializes in the culture of American conservatism. We'll hear a lot more from him in a few minutes. And in the second half of today's show, we've got a boots-on-the-ground perspective from Amanda Moxham of the Hate-Free Schools Coalition of Albemarle County. But here on Bold Dominion, we like to focus on the trends and changes taking place in Virginia politics. Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska has covered state business, politics, and news for four decades. He and I talked a bit about why conservatives are throwing around this term, critical race theory. Take me through what's going on around the state here. Basically, the news is is that in Loudoun County, there's been a great deal of protest by right-wingers against critical race theory, even though Loudon says, well, we don't really teach it in the primary or sort of high school or anything like that. And it got so bad that sheriff's deputies actually threw some older man out. Meanwhile, in, in Albemarle, there was a lot of criticism about supposedly teaching this at Henley Middle School. It made Breitbart. Interestingly, uh, there's a report that uh, Fox News, which is the, probably the single largest uh, perpetrator of the idea that this is socialism and is invading our schools, so far this year, it's mentioned critical race theory on his broadcast uh, 1,860 times. Go figure. Well, it's certainly becoming the uh, the lightning rod issue that's going to make its way into the gubernatorial elections here in Virginia this year. What's uh, What are the implications of all this? Well, it's just going to be kind of interesting. It's the, it seems to be probably the only issue the GOP has right now. Um, and they're, they're really kind of making a, you know bad guys out of just the entire school district's public school system. Peter, I'm struck by how in some ways this this whole bugaboo around critical race theory is is new, uh, at least the the version is new, but in some ways it's very old. Like this reminds me mm-hmm. a lot of the the sort of early precursors of the Tea Party 12 years ago, you know, with mm-hmm. essentially thinly veiled racism being foisted upon white voters and distracting them from other things as elections approach. This is really a reaction going against the affirmative action days of the 60s and 70s in many ways. And um, in, the, in the governor's race here, uh, uh, Glenn Youngkin has already made a big deal about it. I attended a campaign event for him a couple months ago in Prince George County. And he, he said the first thing he's going to do uh, when he, if he gets into office is fire the, uh, one of the highest uh, state education officials related to this. So what's the, what's the key takeaway here in Virginia? What comes next? I think it's a bit distressing. I, I think this has legs, and I think it's not going to go away. My children are no longer in school, but um, I don't want my kids restricted in what they can learn because somebody doesn't like it. You know, I really think that's completely against the entire philosophy behind education. Well, and you've got a, a what I'm struck by is it seems like a, a right wing 
philosophy of education that's really rooted in nostalgia and telling a, a nice story that makes us feel good. Uh, that nostalgia harkens to a time when we didn't have to think about the hard stuff, you know? Exactly. And while that might be comforting, right? As a political program, as a way to sort of instruct our children, it seems like a big old disservice. Exactly. I remember, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, I mean, publicly on television, the shows were pretty much sanitized about race until all in the family. You need to confront these issues if you're not going to repeat them, obviously. I see this as basically yet another iteration of the uh, conservative moves against what happened in the 60s and 70s. I'm sure eventually it will, you know, wash over, but it's, it's going to be an issue, certainly in, the, in politics in Virginia this election season. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. He's been covering Virginia business, politics, and news for four decades. So critical race theory is an academic term that has roots as a legal framework. So how did we get to this point where it's been turned into a catch-all right-wing bugaboo? Bold Dominion assistant producer Catherine Hansen talked with University of Virginia sociology professor Ian Mullins. So critical race theory was developed in the 70s and 80s largely as a legal movement in U.S. law schools. It was a response to what people can consider liberal legal theory. So when it comes to racism, there was an existing understanding that racism was largely an individual level phenomenon. It was something akin to what we consider prejudice today. And in these law schools, there were these emerging scholars that started to see racism differently, not as an individual level phenomenon, not as something that, say, people are just discriminating against other people and they were in error. And if we only got them to think differently, then they would act differently. But rather than to look at the ways in which law or other kind of institutions were structured in ways that created unequal racial outcomes or disparities. So a world within which it wasn't discrimination and prejudice that led to racial inequality, but it was the way in which institutions themselves were built and relate to one another. So critical race theory is one approach to understanding race and racism in the United States. It's an approach that directs our attention to what we can consider today structural racism. So we have the idea that racism can exist on the individual level which often would be like acts of discrimination based on prejudice. It can exist at an institutional level. So say in higher education, there is disproportionate outcomes for white students versus black students. And one of the key contributions of critical race theory was to say what happens in one institution is related to what happens in other institutions. So all of the recent attention surrounding critical race theory, specifically in Loudoun County and with the GOP, where is it coming from? One thing, there's a sociologist named Neil Gross, who's at Colby College, that he argues is that if we want to understand the current attacks on specifically higher education in his argument, but we can expand that more broadly to conservative movement attacks to education and educational institutions, we need to go back to the 1960s. And the reason we need to go back to the 1960s, because that's when some movement activists pioneered approaches for how to advance their kind of political campaigns by focusing on higher education and education more broadly. So that includes secondary and primary education as well. And one of the things that make main intellectual leaders like William Buckley in the 1960s did was they started to politicize what happened in schools. They started to argue that 
higher education was biased against conservative viewpoints. And they started to develop what we call like a repertoire, this way in which conservatives can come to define themselves in relationship to what they're against, but also how they go about advocating against it. So in the 1960s, we see the emergence of certain claims about higher education, that it's biased against conservative viewpoints, that it is about liberal indoctrination of the youth, and that it's a danger to the United States. And these are the same types of claims against higher education that we see in the 1990s and in the 2000s, and that we're seeing again right now. The claims can be very, they're very similar in their content. In some instances, they're the same like verbatim. But what we need to understand, and what I understand from the perspective of a sociologist when it comes to understanding current conservative activists' concerns about critical race theory in education, is what it's doing for the conservative movement. And one thing that these types of criticisms do for the conservative movement is they allow them to activate their base. It is a type of issue that people can engage in that gets a lot of people out there in society really worked up. And it gets them worked up for one, because when we're talking about higher education, many of them went to college and they've had their own experiences and it can resonate with that. Or it can affect what they think is possible for their children. And I say this as a parent of a five-year-old myself, there are a few things in this world that can get me as worked up as quickly as the idea that something is going to negatively impact my child. Whether I understand it or not, it's a real kind of concern that people can feel, right? So we have the conservative movement that's developed this tactic of criticizing higher education by claiming that it is biased against conservative viewpoints. And it's one that's been deployed at different parts of the latter 20th century and to today. And it is one that is largely done with political objectives in mind, rather than an orientation towards modifying what is taught in classrooms. So these types of claims get the base worked up, it gets them activated in terms of political speak, and it, it allows for other types of political activities to be advanced, whether it's getting a particular candidate elected or a particular set of laws. Why is someone trying to make you afraid of an obscure academic approach? Why are they making it seem as if this is a threat to your life? What do they gain? Why this and why now? So starting why this, this is a proven tactic within the conservative movement. I'm not talking about the public, but I'm talking about organized political activity that is well-funded, where the professionals are well-trained and they know exactly how to get an issue to be politicized. And to say that something is politicized, it is to say that it was previously unremarkable. We've been teaching critical race in this country for decades and it was completely unremarkable but it has become an issue that has been entered into the political domain. So the why now is that the conservative movement is in a moment of crisis. Commentators, largely journalists, have wrote about this as the Republican Civil War. And if we can understand that the Republican Party and the conservative movement are not always the same thing, but that one does heavily inform the other, we can start to see that there are different factions within the Republican Party, different factions within the conservative movement that are competing against one another for dominance. And one thing that Trump's ascendancy in the Republican Party have done has been to exacerbate that existing fault line within the Republican Party. And there is truly different factions in that party arguing for control. 
And in this kind of internal fight for control of the party, particular issues have been more effective for the MAGA base. Ones that, you know, sociologists, public commentators is referring to as culture war issues. How do you think that this debate is going to not only influence the Virginia gubernatorial election, but be used as a conservative tactic in the future? There are indications that this will be a trend in how debates occur in the immediate future, that they will happen in a fragmented way where partisans with different allegiances will discuss different issues. They'll demonize their opponents on the opposite side, but they're not really going to interact with one another. And in this particular issue of critical race theory, there's not much substance to it. That doesn't mean other issues won't have substance, but the idea that is being perpetrated among critics of critical race theory is not what critical race theory is. Their perception of it doesn't match its reality. And in that sense, critical race theory has become a symbol for something other than what it is, for a fragmented segment of the population. It's become a dog whistle. It's become a way to activate voters in a knee-jerk way without getting into a substantive discussion. So I do not think that leaders of their respective political parties in Virginia are going to have a substantive conversation about this. I also don't think that's what it's intended to accomplish. I think this is a tactic to activate a Republican base and a specifically a Republican base that can be energized and activated around what we're calling cultural issues. It's not this threat to the American way of life. It's not a threat to children. And so in Virginia, in Loudoun County, just I don't think we're going to have productive conversations about this because we can't agree on what it fundamentally is. Here in Virginia, Loudoun County has been in the news for a number of culture war issues. How does the situation in Loudoun County reflect political division across the state and the nation? Because of the development of the Republican Party in the latter half of the 20th century, it became extremely focused on economic issues. It became extremely focused on an anti-tax program. And in doing so, it started to marginalize social issues. It no longer engaged in questions of immigration or abortion or what are now being considered gender issues. And in doing so, it alienated a big segment of the base. There are people out there that truly do care about social issues. They care about them more than tax plans. And the Republican Party ignored those people for so long that when someone like Trump came along, speaking to the social issues, able to get traction within a primary and become the general election candidate, it gave people a voice. And it gave them kind of a, a, an ally in power through which they could pursue the things that they wanted to pursue socially. So I think we see more confrontation over social issues today because of the dynamic in the Republican Party has changed. Social issues have become a means for candidates to get elected today. So the first part is that people have been concerned about social issues for a while, aligned with their own personal values or attitudes, but the conditions weren't favorable in the past for pursuing those in a public domain, but they are now. 
The second thing is the nationalization of politics. You can't talk about largely what happens in any one county without talking about what is happening nationally, because Americans overall have started to process politics through what is happening with national political parties. They are less concerned about local matters of governance. They are less concerned about immediate problems that they and their neighbors share, and they are more concerned about partisanship. What do you think the controversy surrounding critical race theory will have over the long-term effects of education? Uh, Well, I guess it depends on what state you live in. Um, At University of Virginia, I just finished teaching a summer course, which race and racism were the core subjects of. I think that course would now be illegal in a number of states. Telling people that they can't teach particular subject matter is only going to constrain them from competing ideas. And so I don't think we are protecting anyone from preventing them from learning critical race theory. Most students who go through the university system don't learn critical race theory. They might learn about racism in some way, but that's only one approach to it. And so it doesn't accomplish anything in that regard. You're not protecting children's innocence. What you're doing is creating a forbidden type of knowledge from them. You're telling them that there's something that they can't handle and they can't know, and they're not capable of making judgments on their own. It's infantilizing our children. Uh, Education is not about teaching people what they should think. It is about teaching people how to think. And protecting them, or what you view is protecting them from particular forms of information doesn't teach them how to critically assess and make judgments that they will take with them after education ends. The real sacrifice in a state where teachers are not able to teach material that could challenge students in some way is that we're just failing to prepare those students for a future. We're telling them they can't make decisions or judgments for their own. And in that, we're failing as educators. Where do you see this debate going? I see it being um, the big issue for now. I think it'll lose its effectiveness to activate and, and mobilize people. And I think we'll move on to another issue that operates in a very similar way. I think I'd like to recommend a book, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. So to any listener out there that would like to know more about critical race theory, the book that I recommend is How to Be Less Stupid About Race. It's written as a trade book. It's very accessible. It's somewhat of a memoir as well as a primer on critical race theory as she charts her own academic trajectory you know, through Harvard and having to reinvent herself in a way that she started to focus on the issues that she's concerned about that you know, we refer to as critical race theory. Ian Mullins is a professor of sociology at the University of Virginia. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. Have a friend who's trying to figure out Virginia state politics? Well, tell them about this show. And then subscribe in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever fine podcasts are served up. And while you're there, why not leave a five-star review? We do like those. Bold Dominion is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. Check out all the podcasts from the collective. And apropos of today's Bold Dominion topic, one podcast you should definitely check out is Teachers in the Movement. 
It features voices and stories from educators who taught between 1950 and 1980 throughout the South, and it highlights how their education work was an instrumental form of activism that influenced the civil rights movement. That's Teachers in the Movement. Listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. Of course, the critical race theory debate has been hitting home for those of us in the Charlottesville area. In Albemarle County, teachers at Henley Middle School have been leading anti-bias lessons through the Courageous Conversations pilot program. These efforts to educate and include have drawn ire from a group of parents who say the school is overstepping its bounds. Amanda Moxham is with the Hate Free Schools Coalition of Albemarle County. Bold Dominion assistant producer Karen Kern spoke with her about the Courageous Conversations program and the role of anti-racism work in public schools. So the teaching of critical race theory has been a debate in Virginia, um, and more specifically Albemarle County, for a while now. And there's a program that encompasses CRT called Courageous Conversations that was piloted at J.T. Henley Middle School this past spring. Could you explain a little bit about what Courageous Conversations entails and how it came to be? Sure. So one of the other manifestations of the work that we started is that the Elmar County Public School System did go ahead and using a uh, facilitator from EVA, uh, an education facilitator, she was able to work with a group of students. And so that particular anti-racism policy is actually student-driven and student-led and student-created, which was something that we were really excited to see. From that policy, there are then operational things that need to happen. And so the county, I don't know details, I'm not within the county school system, but I do know that they went through a process to identify an appropriate curriculum. And so that curriculum is called Courageous Conversations, and it aligns very closely with anti-racism, looking at really being able to understand identity and impact of racism within the schools and help students be able to you know, really look at that and uh, be able to understand their role in it, as well as creating places within our school system that are safe for all students to be able to speak up and have challenging conversations around race that they might not have had already. So at Henley, was the program seen as a success? From our perspective with Hate Free Schools Coalition, I think the challenge that they really created for themselves, the school system created for themselves in launching that pilot was by doing it within a particular school that is actually already predominantly white, that could have been handled much better had it been launched at one of the more diverse schools. Why is it important to educate kids about systemic racism at an earlier age? It's important on so many levels. Um, You know, I think first and foremost, one of the big misconceptions around racism is that all that racism is, is individual acts of meanness. And so again, going back to kind of these parents and families that are coming from this conservative religious thought, that flies in the face of what they truly believe that, oh, well, we're nice people, right? We're good people. We aren't mean to other people that don't look like us. And so they cannot translate that to the real understanding of racism, which is that it is systemic in nature. I'll just from my personal experience, I have three children. I have a 21-year-old, I have a 15-year-old, and I have a 9-year-old. And I can really see how deeply the levels of conversation have changed from when my oldest son was going through school to where we are now. You know, with my 9-year-old, I've got I've had to get very comfortable with having conversations around police brutality, what that means, why it's happening. And I think as a parent, we really try to create this little 
safe bubble around our kids. As we talk about future generations, I can already see through the work that I do in the community and the different various groups that I've worked with of all ages, how critically important it is to really help our children be able to understand these things so they can critically analyze, so that they can question, so that they don't continue to perpetuate the same issues that we are living with today. And going back to um, the teaching of of critical race theory and and courageous conversations in particular, um, ACPS was recently attacked by Breitbart for adopting a, quote, uh, radical anti-racism policy that the county has, quote, attempted to keep secret from parents. Could you explain a little bit about this article, what you know about it, and kind of what the reaction has been from from the county and also from Breitbart readers? Sure. So... It is always very interesting to me um, with Courageous Conversations, with the anti-racism policy, with any of this work that has been happening very specifically and intentionally for the last three years, four years, um, that there are parents that exist in this county that can honestly say that they had no idea. It is not being kept under wraps. It has been very publicly handled. All of the school board meetings are public meetings. I think that The biggest shift is with COVID, the fact that these meetings are online and people can check in online while it's happening as opposed to having to drive to a school board meeting to actually witness it. But even then, all of those school board meetings are posted on the county's YouTube channel to watch. So actually, it's been very public and very visible. It's just parents and families that didn't want to hear it and didn't want to see it and maybe thought, it wouldn't actually impact them. And people are able to voice their complaints at these school board meetings just as much as they're able to to voice their support. How how does it feel as a parent to hear and interact with these people, especially other parents who are refusing to accept um, the inclusion of a more progressive curriculum? Sure, and I think that your, your earlier question included the part about the Breitbart News article. It's so interesting, too... That is a weaponization, I think, of our children and our children's experience and taking what is happening in our school system. Those parents very intentionally reached out to Breitbart and shared this information. Breitbart isn't looking at Albemarle County. They're not looking at these small school systems. It's the parents who want to create more fear-mongering and who want to bring harm to our community. It's just creating a much broader scale push from the right-wing conservative agenda to try to knock this down and call it something that it's not. Do you worry that this backlash is going to slow down the implementation of the new curriculum into Albemarle County Public Schools? A few years ago, yes. I would have been really concerned about that. It feels like the county's response and the school board's response at this point is courageous conversations is the operational side of our anti-racism policy that we approved in 2019, and this is the train that we're on, and that's it. I think we were initially worried that the school board would start to back away and get fearful of you know being, being bold and being courageous, but I think that they get it to a certain point that this is the decision that has been made, and they're all in agreement with it. If Courageous Conversations was implemented into every public school in Albemarle, would parents have a choice to opt out of these lessons? 
don't uh, I don't think that they'll be able to opt out of those particular. That was another actually I forgot about that. That was another component of what some of these parents were asking for was like an opt out. But from what I have read so far, it doesn't seem that the county is willing to kind of compartmentalize this and pull it out because, and again, going back to just the notion of critical race theory and and the intersectionality of all of this, you know, once you start opening up these conversations, it's very clear how quickly they permeate everything that you're doing. You can be sitting in your English class, and if you're reading a book in which racism is a component of it, there's another conversation to be had. So you can't start picking and choosing and, and crafting things in a way that shields children from the reality. And I I feel like the school systems are starting to pick up on that and and understanding that this is um, naturally and innately woven into curriculum, whether intentionally and overtly or kind of unconsciously, it is just part of the conversation. Amanda Moxham is a member of the Hate Free Schools Coalition of Albemarle County. Thanks to her and also journalist Peter Galaska and sociologist Ian Mullins for speaking with us for this episode. My name's Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Huge thanks to our producers this week, Kim Salak, Catherine Hansen, and Karen Kern, and Annie Parnell, who edited and produced this week's show. Find us online at bolddominion.org. Go ahead and subscribe. It's just a click away. Hey, I hope you can handle the heat out there. It's a hot one this summer. I'll talk with you again in two weeks. 